Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I read a few verses from that already, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into that chapter this morning. Someone not long ago asked me what my favorite passage of the Bible is, my favorite book of the Bible or section of a book. And I said, whatever I'm preaching that week, that's my favorite. Each week I'm convinced that this is the most important part of the Bible. And then we get to another passage and I have that revelation again. But it it got me thinking. I thought if the questions worded a little bit differently, I might have a different answer. If I was on a deserted island and could have only one chapter of the Bible for the rest of my life, what chapter would it be? Well, hopefully you're turning to it in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. It is the quintessential resurrection chapter of the Bible. It delivers to us what is of first importance, as it says, and it does so at some length. It not only tells us that Christ rose from the dead, but it tries to prove it to us. It reasons with us. It not only deals with the reality of the resurrection, but the implications and dual implications, really. Implications of no resurrection of Jesus and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. There are some historical events where whether they happened or not doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't affect me that much at all. I believe that American astronauts landed on the moon in 1969 but I don't feel like my life's been changed by that. It wouldn't be totally uh, earth-shattering in my world anyway to find out that it was faked. I don't believe that it was. Or, Or take Hitler's death. Textbooks say that Adolf Hitler killed himself in his bunker in Berlin in 1945. But then the History Channel this last year ran a series, Hunting Hitler, anyone else glued to that one? Yeah, fascinating. Perhaps he escaped and got to Argentina and died sometime, somewhere, after 1945. It was fascinating, but I thought afterwards it really doesn't matter. I mean, it would have mattered if he were able to reassemble a Fourth Reich and get a bomb to the United States, but he didn't. He's dead now. Not really a game changer, whether he died in Berlin or Argentina. And I think some people think of the resurrection kind of like this. Some people, yes, they're passionately believing the resurrection of Jesus happened. Some vehemently deny that it happened. And most Americans, I suspect, couldn't really care. Potato, potato. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. What's for lunch? But the resurrection is a game changer. The implications are far-reaching. They are eternal. They're inescapable. So we would do well to reckon with the resurrection, to wrestle with it if we never have before, to reason with it now rather than later. So let's let 1 Corinthians 15 help us. It's a long chapter, so we won't read the whole thing. We won't spend time in the whole thing, but the first 20 verses will help us today. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised." And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the Apostle Paul is very logical when he writes, he's often making an argument. When it feels like he might be being random, rambling on, chances are we're just not picking up what he's doing and what he's getting at. In verse 12 of this passage, Paul deals with a concern he has that he has heard that some in the Corinthian church have begun to believe that there's no resurrection of the dead. That is, in the end of time, there is no reuniting of human souls with human bodies, but they have a disembodied eternity either in heaven or hell. That's not biblical. Paul's concerned about that. He's writing in this section to address that. But before he gets to that, he's going to remind them about the gospel with the resurrection at the center of it all. And then he's going to connect the resurrection of Jesus with this issue of the resurrection of the dead. And then he's going to address this problem that's in the Corinthian church where they're denying the resurrection of the dead. You see in verse 12 there, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, even Christ has not been raised. Now this is Paul's logic. This is where he's going. I think for us to see it more clearly, it might help if we move backwards in the passage one section at a time. So let's start with this. From verses 12 to 20, in that section there, we might label it the centrality of the resurrection. 
It's the centrality of the resurrection where he's addressing this concern of people in the Corinthian church denying the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to go at it from, from several different hypothetical angles, imagining what it would be like if there is no resurrection of Christ. What would that mean if there is a resurrectionless Christianity? Now, by the way, there are people who believe this today. Of course, there are plenty of people who don't believe in the resurrection, but there are some who call themselves Christians. There are people meeting in this city today who are believing and they're hearing teaching about how Jesus is merely risen in their hearts. That the resurrection that's in the Bible is simply a metaphor for a new start, a new dawning, a new hope. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 here is clearly talking about Jesus' real bodily resurrection. The concern is this issue of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Physical resurrection, real bodies. Is that going to happen? Well, he's dealing with that by talking about Jesus' resurrection of a real body. You see, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is central to Christianity. Faith is not a virtue by itself. Paul's preaching would have been empty and futile wrong and misguided. The Corinthians' faith would have been empty and futile and misguided if Christ isn't raised from the dead. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, Paul's wondering, what am I doing here in Ephesus? Later on, he'll say, I'm fighting beasts in Ephesus. Those aren't real beasts or animals. They're, they're people. Paul writes elsewhere about the shipwrecks he went through and the stonings that happened to him. He was once thought to be dead and dragged out of the city because they thought it was a corpse. And then he woke up outside the city, barely alive. He's wondering, why would I be doing any of this if Christ isn't raised from the dead? Why would I have left my plush Pharisee spot where... I was on a 10-year track, you could say, and I, I, had a, a, I had a retirement package there, and it was all safe and nice, and what am I doing traveling about and being persecuted if this message I preach is a lie that would be dumb, and your faith would be a sham, and I'd be misrepresenting God, he says. And, verse 17, you'd still be in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead then we can't trust what he said. He said that when he went to the cross, it wouldn't just be unfortunate, it wouldn't just be sinful and wrong. It, it was him paying for sins. He said he would be a ransom for many sins, Mark 10, 45. And if the resurrection didn't happen, we might rightly wonder if that payment didn't get through. Jesus said he would die before he died, and he said he would be raised. And if he was only half right, then he was dead wrong. And hence, the only tenet of Christianity that would be true 
is the problem of sin without any fix. Those then who have fallen asleep, verse 18, that's a euphemism for died. Those who died as Christians, he says, if Christ hasn't risen, they've just perished. They've just died. At best, they just died. Perhaps they're also eternally perishing. Verse 19, if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are pitiable fools. We're not to be commended for it. It's not the good life. When I was a kid, I heard my pastor say, even if Christianity weren't true, I'd still be a Christian. Christianity's the good life. And I thought, hmm, okay, I, I can understand how that might be true in some way. Sure, sin has painful consequences to it. But I remember thinking, something here doesn't add up. Why would you still believe what is false? Don't you want truth? Even if Christianity weren't true, you'd be a Christian still? And you'd get together and sing songs with other dumb people about things that aren't true? Well, that's silly. I wouldn't want that. I want, I want truth. Well, here's the truth. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. And if that's so, which it is, then you can flip upside down or, or put right side up all those things he said before. Christianity isn't foolish or pitiable, but enviable. Because those who die as Christians, they don't just die. The grave is not the end. Death has been defeated. There's life and eternal life on the other side. Those who believe in Christ are no longer in their sins. His death paid for sins. His resurrection proved that the payment had been made. So our faith isn't in vain. It's not empty. It's spot on. It's based on truth and historical fact. And so we're not to just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We don't live unto ourselves. We live unto the Lord. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. And so risk for him is good. It's all right. Danger, it's no problem because we're representing God to the world. Our proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, isn't useless to this world, but it is essential to this world. It's God's message. It's what he's doing. So the resurrection is central to Christianity now, I'm, you might say, well, okay, I see how it's all bundled together. I see how you pull the resurrection out and the whole thing crumbles. That's exactly my point. I think the whole thing just crumbles. I think the resurrection was probably a fabrication of someone's imagination. Well, if so, Paul moves up in the argument. As we move up in our passage, notice the next part of this. Secondly, confirmation of the resurrection. There's confirmation of the resurrection in what Paul says in verses 3 through 11. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. Paul didn't make that up on his own. That was not his message. 
He received it. This threefold statement of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is widely agreed, even by secular scholars, to, to be an early confession of the truth, an early confession of the gospel. Paul got this in this form. Yes, it's translation into English, but in its original form, Paul got that as a saying, as a summary of the gospel that was confessed by the early church. It had been passed along. It had been widely embraced. A weekend. It was all about a weekend. A Friday and a Sunday. A death and a resurrection. It was not only passed along, it was in accordance with the scriptures. Both the death and the resurrection, he says, are in accordance with the scriptures. There are these passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's servant coming and suffering. To be a suffering servant. David wrote of his pain and opposition in such extravagant terms that they happen to pretty nicely fit what happened to Jesus, the son of David, on the cross. Like Psalm 22. The resurrection is also in the, New, in the Old Testament not as clearly, but it's there because this suffering servant would one day be vindicated. The son of David would be eternal and reign forever and hence he can't end in a grave. And then Paul moves on in his argument listing the appearances that the risen Christ made to many after the resurrection. He's just stacking up confirmation I didn't make up this message. I received it. It's been widely disseminated and widely embraced. It's in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to people. There wasn't just an empty tomb. It wasn't just the angel's announcement. He showed up to various people in groups of people at different times in different ways and often very up close. He appeared to Cephas. That is Peter. Why is he singling out Peter? Well, likely because Peter had that horrible Thursday night where he denied his Lord three times. And without a resurrection of Jesus, that's just the end of the story. Peter denied his Lord three times. He went out and he wept bitterly and Jesus died. Boy, that was sad. But there's more to the story. Jesus showed up. The risen Lord met with Peter. They had an intimate moment in John 21 where Peter reaffirmed his love for the Savior and Jesus reaffirmed Peter's usefulness for the Lord. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, Peter being used to the Lord. He's preaching various sermons and thousands of people are coming in and coming to Jesus. He appeared, it says in verse 6, to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500 saw him at one time. We're not sure when or what the context was for this. But as Paul writes 1 Corinthians, it's only about 20 years after the cross and resurrection weekend. Only 20 years. You might say, oh, that sounds like a long time. I bet the story could get mixed up in 20 years. I mean, a lot of people, maybe they saw something, maybe they didn't. But 20 years later, I've, I know the telephone game where the more you pass it around, the 
the, the weirder it gets. Yeah, but they all had the same story. 20 years later, Paul says, 500 saw him at once. Some are dead already, but, but some are alive. And Israel is not a big plot of land. So walk around and ask some people. And some of them will say, yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I remember. 20 years ago was not that long ago. Remember 1997? Unless you're a child in here, you do. In 1997, Princess Diana was killed. That year, Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. Remember that? You can picture it, can't you? Holyfield did that dance. Remember that? O.J. Simpson was found guilty in the civil trial in 97. I can picture all those. I saw them on TV. And none of those things were so significant to me that they would be anything like the resurrection of Jesus, especially for these disciples who saw him. They remembered, they, they rehearsed what they saw and they heard, and then they soon started writing down what they remembered. That's the New Testament. James is a guy who wrote a book of the New Testament. Verse 7, he appeared to James. Most likely that's referring to a brother of Jesus. And Jesus' brothers, you might know, didn't believe in him, didn't believe he was the Messiah. They were embarrassed of him. They tried, to, they tried to get him to come home and shut up and quit making a scene already. And there's no positive mention about Jesus' brothers until later on we find out that one of them, James, somehow is a leader in the early church. And again, he writes a book of the Bible toward the end of the New Testament. So how do you explain that? They didn't believe, then they believed. If you did not believe that your brother was the Christ, the Messiah, before he was sentenced to death, you probably wouldn't believe after he was killed, would you? Or how about Paul, the guy who's writing 1 Corinthians? Remember, he didn't just receive news of a resurrected Christ. He saw him. Last of all, he appeared also to me, the least of the apostles, because he persecuted the church. Now, that's found in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is going into Damascus with letters from on high to round up Christians and any of them he could find. Two chapters before, he was in charge of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Paul, who was then called Saul, had heard news, rumors of the resurrection of Jesus, and he thought it was blasphemy. And he sought to stomp it out. He was willing to kill to make it go away. But on that road to Damascus, something changed. He encountered the risen Christ. And things would never be the same for him. He instantly called Jesus Lord. He obeyed him. Jesus said, go into town. He went. And eventually, Paul became the most significant messenger of Jesus, writing more books of the New Testament than anyone else. 
But on that road to Damascus, he was not looking for a resurrected Christ. He was not hoping for a resurrected Christ. He did not anticipate he might actually see the resurrected Christ. So how do you explain the change apart from the resurrection? Secular scholars agree that Paul existed. They believe he wrote 1 Corinthians. They believe that was sometime in the mid-50s. They believe that Paul at first opposed Christianity and then was its biggest spokesman. How did that happen apart from the resurrection? And you can say, well, I'm sure it was a vision. It was a dream. Road to Damascus, that sounds hot and dusty. It was probably a mirage or, or sunstroke or something. He saw it and he didn't really see it. Well, don't forget that he wasn't alone, though. Other people saw Jesus as well at different times, at different places. People saw Jesus. Not from far away. I think that's him. It's a guy with long hair and a beard, right? Sandals? About this high? Yeah, I, th I think I see him real far away over there. No, they, they saw him up close. Sometimes they ate with him. Sometimes they touched him. The resurrection is confirmed by scripture and by eyewitnesses. And the resurrection is central to Christianity. It's central to the gospel, to the good news. It centers on a weekend of a Friday and a Sunday, a death and a resurrection. This is of first importance, Paul says. And so it's with this in mind, all this in mind, that Paul begins this chapter by saying, remember the gospel. Stick with it, stand on it, hold fast to it, make sure you have not believed in vain, cling to it. That's one way we could describe or summarize verses one and two, clinging to the gospel. We've seen the centrality of the resurrection, confirmation of the resurrection. That resurrection is the death Sorry, that gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We must cling to it. Let me read those verses again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, that word means good news. It's proclaimed, it's announced. It's an announcement of an event, an event out of which a whole new world springs. Many events can come and go, and it will not affect us. Things from history could be, could be deleted from the annals of history, and many of them wouldn't matter to us. But the resurrection of Jesus is different. It's an event. There is no other religion so hitched to an event like Christianity. Other religions offer a way of life, a way to look at things, perspective, or attitude. They might have a historical event as part of the story, but you could take that out 
and the teaching still holds. Not so with Christianity. Yes, Christianity is a way of life. Sure, it is truth to be believed. It is a way of looking at things. Sure, but all that is necessarily inextricably tied to this event of death and resurrection. Something happened that weekend in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. The world has never been the same since. Not just that a death and resurrection took place, but that it was a death and resurrection according to plan and for the forgiveness of sins. He died for our sins, verse 3 says, and then he was raised. In this, Paul says, you are being saved, rescued, restored to God. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you stand in it, if you hold fast to it, if you prove that you haven't believed in vain, that it wasn't a fake faith. If it's real faith, you just keep on believing. Not perfectly so. I, I have ups and downs in my confidence about the Bible. This week, my confidence is really high. I've been thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. I've been thinking about old New Testament documents that have been discovered. And I think, boy, this, this is real. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Hold fast to it. Stand in it. Rehearse it over and over. Or if you haven't yet come to embrace it, embrace it. Ask questions. Sit down with another Christian. Read the Bible together. Sit down with someone who knows a little bit more about the Bible than you do. Ask your best hard questions. Sometimes the answer will be, I don't know. And sometimes it'll be, yeah, I wondered that too. Here's the answer. This is of first importance. This matters most. So Christian, never tire of it. Never stray from it. Love to hear it afresh, to receive it again, to stand in it, to hold fast to it, to not believe in vain, but cling to it. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Because if the resurrection is true, and I believe that it is, then to believe it and to follow the Savior in it, it's no pitiable thing. It's no foolish thing. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then those who die as Christians, they don't just die. The grave is simply a passageway to God. Why? Well, because they're no longer in their sins, because Jesus paid for their sins. And so their faith is not in vain, it's not empty, it's not silly. And we don't live life as just eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. We have an eternal God. We have a Savior who will return. And until then, we represent him well as best we can to the world, even if it means harm, even if it means opposition. It matters not. We're representing God to the world. It's his message. It's his man. We're simply messengers. And we look for the day when Jesus will come again, when he will make all things new, when he will fix all that is broken in this world.
when he will defeat all enemies, including death itself. We know he can because he did. He defeated death of the resurrection. We know he'll put an end to death one day. Death is swallowed up in victory, this chapter ends by saying. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for hope because of grace. We thank you for grace at such great cost. Lord, help us to embrace what you have done for us. We pray for those who are with us who haven't yet come to do that. We pray they would, perhaps today, perhaps right now, they would call out to you and just simply say, I give up. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and was raised on the third day and now offers me mercy if I simply believe it and ask for it. Would you give it to me, Lord? Please give it for Jesus' sake. We pray, Lord, that some in this room would pray something like that on their own sometime today or sometime soon as you continue to extend your mercy and fix wrongs in this world through your man, the God-man, Jesus, living, reigning forever and coming again soon. We thank you for him. Amen.